Our scripture today comes from Psalm 32 and can be found on page 462 in the Black black Bibles in front of you. Again, that's Psalm 32 on page 462. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found surely in the rush of great waters. They shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. All you upright in heart, the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, my name is Steve, one of the leaders here, and we are continuing our series called Real Life. We are looking at the Psalms, and as we go through the Psalms, what we're doing basically is getting a glimpse. Um, these are poems, these are worship songs that were written um, by various guys, a lot of them by David, and um, they're glimpses into real life struggle to try and figure out how faith makes sense um, in, in the middle of the chaos that is life, right? A lot of times we think about these old guys, and they're like, oh, they're the saints, man. They just had a different kind of life back then, and, and, and we almost like distance ourselves from them, but the reality is our culture's different, our time is different, but the human condition is the same, and it, is, um, no, um, it was no, no easier for David to walk in an incredible faith that set him free and gave him joy than, than it is for us today. Um, and, and so as we look at this, what we're going to do is unpack principles that help us see how we can have a dynamic faith that actually frees us and gives us joy um, in the middle of real life, which often is confusing and messy and full of a lot of hurts. And so three weeks ago, we took a look at this idea of, of, of where is God's blessing in the midst of suffering? Um, in general, last week, we looked at the idea of where is God's hand of blessing um, when the suffering has a face, when there's a jerk in our lives who, who is inflicting on us unjust suffering. This morning, we're going to be looking at this idea of what, what about when the suffering is just? What about when we're just get, getting what we deserve? What about when we are our own worst problem? Right? Where's God when I screw up? It, it, and what I want us to unpack and see is that when we're our own worst enemies, um, God's still our best friend. And, and that's a powerful, powerful truth that's going to enable us to deal with our brokenness in ways that move us toward freedom instead of into bondage. Now, before we unpack this, um, I want to pray for a specific group of people. This morning at um, 4.30 or so, um, in this monsoon weather, uh, there was a group of people that met in our parking lot um, four adults and a bunch of kids, and they're heading down to New Orleans right now. The adults were um, Brian, who is our worship leader. He's often up here singing. Brian and his wife, Melinda. Um, they're taking um, a bunch of our high school age kids down to New Orleans to do um, some work for the next week. Um, Kyle and Chelsea Klunick join them as chaperones, um, and they're going down there basically just to serve and to love and to look for God's hand in the middle of all that craziness. And so I want to pray for them. They're on the road right now and, and just pray that they have a great week. So will you guys pray with me? Father, we, um, we thank you that you are a good God and that um, you are here and there. You are um, as present in this moment here as you are in that van and in New Orleans. We know, Lord, that your power is uh, limitless. Your presence is everywhere. And so right now, we just pray your hand of guidance and protection on uh, the cars that are caravanning down to New Orleans. We, we pray, Lord, that you would be with the leaders, give them energy um, and focus and joy in the service. Um, be with the kids uh, as they serve, um, as they kind of do life together, as they're confronted um, daily with, um, 
really just an opportunity to lay down their lives for the good of others. And I pray that in the middle of that, you'll give them a real taste of grace, that you will change their lives in real and powerful ways, that they'll come to love you more um, and, and develop a taste for operating that love for the good of others. Pray for um, our leaders again, that they'll just have wisdom and, and that your hand of protection will be on them. So bless this trip. We pray, Lord, your, your name will be glorified as a result of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is, a, is an interesting psalm. It's a psalm of confession. It's a psalm where David is basically saying, I screwed up, um, and, and I want to tell you about it, okay? I'm going to kind of come clean, and I'm going to invite you into it. What I love is the way it starts. Take a look at the verse two verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I love that he starts here. He doesn't start with, woe is me. He doesn't start with, oh man, I'm a mess up. He doesn't start, he starts, <laughs> he starts with the work of God for him in the past, and he's going to talk about the work of God in his life now. He, he's unpacking this idea that, that really this is where we start. We start with this idea that God forgives. There are three words for sin um, in these first two verses, um, transgression, sin, iniquity. And I'm not going to unpack each one individually, but, but just say it this way. There's the, David is using Hebrew parallelism in his poetry. He's saying the same thing three times, um, not to simply be repetitive, but to call us to sit in it, to call us to consider it. When poets do that, when they, when they either put two ideas together that are, that are very similar or two ideas that are very different, what they're doing is they're calling us to sit in the tension of that idea. That repetition is designed to get us to kind of pause and sit there. And what he's saying is, is three times he's saying God forgives sin. And he uses these three different words, and those three different words basically encompass every kind of sin that we can commit. Um, sins of ignorance, sins of commission, sins of omission, all of them are covered. What does all that mean? It means that, that, that we're talking about the sins you choose to do. When you choose to be a jerk... When you choose to be dishonest, when you choose to defraud somebody, when you choose to dishonor God, when you choose to seek what only God can give in a place where God isn't, <laughs> where you choose basically to, to say, I'm going to pursue an idol in my life, where I, whatever it is, when we choose to sin, that's covered. When we, when we should have done something and we just didn't, when we should have said the good word, when we should have stood up for somebody. When we, when we should have, all of that's covered. The sins of omission, the sins of, 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 of a lack of justice and mercy, all those are covered. Um, everything from the, the sins of ignorance, things that we do simply because we don't know any better, to the sins of willful rebellion, the things that we do that, that we do simply because we're in that moment wicked. They're all covered. The full gamut. And, and I love the way he repeats these phrases. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The Hebrew word for forgiven has this idea of, of being carried away. Blessed is the man whose, whose transgression is carried away. It's, it, it, what he's picturing it is like this burden, this incredibly heavy burden that you carry that you don't know what to do with. And, and you don't have the strength to do anything with it. It's sitting right on top of you and it's crushing you. Blessed is the man when God shows up and says, I'm taking that burden off your shoulders. I'm removing the weight of your transgression. He goes on and says, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Now, he's not talking about covered here like we cover things. You ever get a spill uh, in your living room, right? And, and you got guests coming over and you just move a chair, right? It's like, oh, I don't see it. It's not there, right? That's how we deal with our sin. That's not how God deals with our sin. When God covers our sin, it is absolutely, completely, totally covered. It's, it's, the idea here is that there's a stain that we don't have the ability to remove. God removes it. There's a mark, a mar, a defining aspect that is incredibly hideous and ugly to us that we have no power to remove. God covers it. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That word count is an important word. It's used throughout Scripture, and it takes us to this doctrine that we call imputation. The idea of imputation, very simply, is a, is a, a legal or, or even a financial term that means that God looks at our account. So, so we've seen three metaphors. 
God sees our sin as a great weight that we can't carry. He removes it. He sees it as a, sin, a, sin, a stain that we can't clean, so he covers it. He sees it as a debt, but he doesn't count our debt to us. He, he doesn't impute or count the weight of our debt to us. Why? Because we know from the New Testament that he counted our debt somewhere else. This is a beautiful doctrine, this idea of, of imputation. The New Testament tells us that he who knew no sin, well, there's only one of those, that's Jesus, right? The, the God-man, he who knew no sin, who lived the life we should have lived, ended up dying the death we deserve to die. He who knew no sin became sin for us. How could the person who's sinless become sin? That's, that's imputation. God counted our sin to his account, and then he had to pay it. He stood in as our substitute and paid the debt we deserved to pay so that God wouldn't count our debt to our account, he would count it to his. And we call it a, a doctrine of double imputation because it's not just that God took away our sin, God then credited to our account Christ's righteousness. So he not only says, I'm going to transfer your sin to your substitute, I'm going to take your substitute's goodness, his righteousness, and I'm going to transfer it to you. Blessed is the man to whom God does not count his iniquity. Blessed is the man when God looks at your account and says, I don't see all the wrongs you've done. I see all the rights Jesus has done. I don't see your debt of justice because I see my satisfaction in your substitute, that your substitute paid your debt and took your place. This is called the blessing of justification. Now, justification is a $10 theological word that simply means that this is the way God declares people right. That's a, actually a huge theological problem. How can God take a sinner and say to him, you're declared right? How, how can God, the just judge, look at somebody who is not just and say to him, you are now just and acceptable in my sight? God does it by imputing our sin to our substitute, the one who took our place in judgment so that that person could then impute to us his righteousness. This is scandalous. It's kind of crazy. I love these verses because the scope is incredible. I mean, think about it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. What did he do to remove his own weight? Nothing. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. What did he do to remove his own stain? Nothing. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. What did he do to pay off his own debt? Nothing. This is scandalous. This is, this is crazy. This is crazy. And the problem is, we don't like to believe it. We don't like to believe that it's that free. We don't like to believe that, that God has, in fact, made it and I won't say easy because it's not easy, but that accessible. Surely there's a price we need to pay. Surely there's something I need to do in order to make God favor me, to pour out that kind of blessing on me. Surely there's some kind of button I got to push, right? Are you telling me all I got to do is show up and believe it? Yes. In fact, that's the only thing you can do. Take a look at these, these verses. I'm going to put these on the screen. This is from Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is laying out an argument, a theological argument. It's very thorough, um, and it's, it's wonderful. Uh, but it, he's basically laying out this argument about justification by faith, this idea that, that you are declared right by God simply on the basis of faith. And in this chapter, he actually quotes Psalm 32, our two verses, the ones we're looking at. He quotes these verses. As, as part of his proof that this is, in fact, the way God has always worked with man, that this has always been God's agenda with man. He has always operated on the sense that you don't have to impress me. You have to simply trust that I will forgive you. I will find a way to remove your guilt and remove your shame. David, Abraham, all those guys were looking forward to the way God would do it. We have the privilege of looking back. They looked forward to when God would send the Messiah and simply had to trust in faith that he would send a way for them to be delivered. We get to look back and actually see how God has done it. And this is what Paul says. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what does this do? What does he mean by that? When we tell God 
Well, when we tell ourselves, we're subtly telling God, but usually we're telling ourselves, I have to get my act in order in order to be forgiven. What we're saying is I have to work. I have to work. I have to do something. I have to go to church. I have to pray more. I have to confess my sins. I, I, have, to, I have to stop drinking. I have to start doing these good things, right? Some of you very subtly tell, your th- tell yourself these things every day. Like, oh, I got to get up and read my Bible. I didn't read my Bible today. I guess God's not going to be happy with me. What you're doing when you, when you say those things is you're saying to God, you're my employer. I'm going to do my work, and then you're going to owe me a wage. You're saying to God, I, I'm, I'm doing this, now I deserve payment. I now feel better about myself. Are you better? No. But you, you puff yourself up by doing these works, and now you have this record of, oh, look at all these good things I've done, right? And, and then you're trying to lay them out before the holy, just God of the universe and say to him, aren't you impressed? You owe me. The one who works, his wages are counted not as a gift, but as what is due. You're coming to God and basically saying, all right, now you owe me right? To the one who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, it's his faith that's counted as righteousness. <laughs> this is scandalous, and it's radical, and we have a hard time believing it. Basically, what he's saying is, stop it. Stop trying to impress me. Stop trying to do all these good works to make yourself better. Stop doing things to try and remove your burden because you can't. Stop doing things to try and cleanse the stain because you can't. Stop doing things to pay your debt because it's too great. What he's saying is you need to realize how incredibly, incredibly hopeless you are in your sin. You are destitute. You are completely bankrupt. You are crushed under its weight. You are completely stained Your debt isn't just a few dollars, it is infinite and you will never be able to pay it back. Despair, and in that despair, start to hope. Because in the despair, what you're going to realize is that it's not my job to work. As long as you think you're not that bad, you're just going to go on on, on, about a a self-improvement process. You're going to look at God and say, that gray stuff's great, but I'm just about self-improvement. I'm just going to make myself better so I can feel better about myself and so I can feel like I deserve... In the end, we don't deserve anything. That is the craziest thing. To the one who doesn't work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly? I mean, are you listening to what he's saying? <laughs> you are a cosmic traitor. But don't try and fix it. Because you can't. Trust in the one who can that's faith. That's how David was made right before God. That's how Abraham was made right before God. That's how every human being that ever walked the face of the earth was ever made right before God, was simply coming to God and recognizing, I can't fix this, you can. And you have promised to do it. God has revealed himself from the very beginning as a God rich in mercy who forgives sins. Abraham came to him, didn't understand exactly how God was going to do it, but trusted that he would. He trusted that God was who he said he was and that he would do what he said he would do. That's the same exact burden that's placed on us today. Do we really believe that God is the one who justifies the ungodly? That he accepts us, not based on our work, not based on our performance, not based on our self-image, not based on what people think of us, not based on how good we do at school, how smart we are, how beautiful we are, how smart we are, how how, how much we impress our professors, how, how many people praise us. God doesn't Pay attention to any of that because he sees the truth, and that is that we are utterly shameful, utterly broken, utterly rebellious, utterly sinful, and yet in that state still loves us. And when we despair of trusting in ourselves, we are suddenly free to trust in him because it's our only hope. And we find that not only is he our only hope, he is our best hope because he's the only one that could actually lift the burden. He's the only one that could actually cleanse the stain. He's the only one that could actually pay the debt. That's justification, to be declared right. His faith is counted. His faith is imputed to him as righteousness. That's where we start in this psalm. And it's incredibly important that we start there because we're going to talk about sin today. We're going to talk about when we screw up and when we mess up. But what I want to start with is this. (laughs) This is the foundation of everything else. 
This is the foundation of everything else. We have to start with an understanding that we are made right, not through our effort for God, but through God's effort through us and through Christ. He has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and He will continue to do in us what we can't do for ourselves. He has declared us right, and He will make us right. Not so that we can impress Him and finally earn His love, but because He's already impressed Himself in the work of Christ and has secured for us a place of absolute love. Blessed is the man. Now, that word blessed, man, what a biblical word. We don't use that very often. You don't walk around, man, blessed are you among men, dude. You know, that's kind of weird. But other translations kind of catch the idea here. One translation said, how fortunate are you? Uh, How fortunate are you? Another said, congratulations to you. Be glad. Do you realize that this is, in fact, the best news in the universe? This is the solution to every problem. You're like, no, not really. I think I got to get a job, right? Yeah, got to get a job. Why? So I can have security. Really? Your security comes from your job? (laughs) Or does your security come from the fact that the God of the universe has declared you his son or his daughter and has poured out on you all of his riches in Christ Jesus? Well, I got to find someone to marry. Yeah, yeah, you probably do. But that's not your hope either, right? Your hope isn't to finally, well, someone's going to love me. Really? Because you're probably going to mess up. And they're probably not going to love you as much as you hope. And and they're probably going to let you down. But if your hope is actually rooted in the love of God, which never wavers, never shakes, never is moved, that actually allows you to enjoy your marriage. Here's the deal. All the other blessings are wonderful because of this blessing. This is the one that ultimately creates the fulfillment that everything else promises but never delivers. This answers your soul's most central question. What is the most central question of the human soul? Am I loved? Am I loved? And am I lovable? And we spend our entire lives trying to answer that question. Am I loved and am I lovable? And outside of the work of Christ, we're on a treadmill that never ends and never gets us where we hope to go. We're constantly performing, constantly working, constantly improving self, constantly changing things, constantly shifting things, constantly pursuing things that can never answer the deepest questions of our soul. This answers the deepest question of our souls. Are you loved? Absolutely. Why? Because God chooses to. And he's demonstrated it by actually paying the price necessary for you to enter back into relationship with him. This is the blessing of justification. If you take a look at verses 10 and 11... I love the way the psalm ends. It's bookended by these, these concepts. The first is, man, you are forgiven. And in verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Don't just breeze over that. How many sorrows do you let loose in your own life? Because you're pursuing love in the wrong places. You're pursuing meaning in the wrong places. You're pursuing things that, that, that only God can give and things that aren't God. You're constantly trying to answer those questions, those deep-seated questions of identity in all the wrong places. Am I loved? Yeah, because so-and-so loves me. Really? Yeah, what happens when they let you down? Are you worthwhile? Absolutely. Why? Because I perform, I succeed, I do this, I do that. And you're on this roller coaster ride of constantly trying to self-justify. And while you're going up this side, you feel really good about yourself, and you're constantly condemning everybody around you who doesn't measure up. And when you finally realize that you don't measure up, you're plunged back down to the point where you're condemning yourself. And you're constantly working between condemning others, condemning yourself. And and, and in the end, it's just this black hole of self-need. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Self-justification projects always end in self-destruction. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But his steadfast love, demonstrated in Christ, his immovable, unshakable, boundless love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Why? Why? Because you are in Christ. And as much as God loves Christ, (laughs) He loves you. When He sees you in your brokenness, in your sin, in your failure, He sees Christ. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If you get this, those will be more than just words. If you get this, you will be driven by joy. 
I mean, I love brand new believers. You ever had the opportunity of, of you know, sharing the truth with somebody and having come to, or being around somebody who's just hurt? Man, they are just glowing, right? They, they are just like so aware of the awesome, incredible gift that they've given that they've been given, this idea that they've been given a forgiveness they don't deserve, they've been relieved of a weight they couldn't carry, that, that they have been declared right and loved by God, the same God they could never earn the right to claim. That kind of joy is fleeting in a believer's life. And it's not because this truth changes, it's because we lose sight of this truth. It isn't because God's disposition toward us has changed. It's because we start believing lies about God's disposition toward us and we stop seeing Him as the justifying, loving Father who is declaring us right. See, justification is more than just a dry doctrine. It answers our soul's deepest, most pressing questions. And that's why we need to remind ourselves of these truths on a regular basis so that our soul is brought back into the delight of His delight in us, back into the joy of the fact that He loves us in spite of us, that He has declared us right, not because of what we've done for Him, but because of what Christ has done for us. Blessed is the man, how fortunate is the man, happy is the man, joyful is the man who lives in the reality of this truth. So how do we fight for this in the face of our failure? How do we fight to live in the reality and the experience of this joy in the face of the fact that we screw up and, in fact, do that a lot? Well, that's, we're going to talk about the, the blessing of sanctification. That's another theological $10 word. Justification is a word that describes um, the way God declares us right, that He can take a sinner and basically say, you're right in spite of your sin. And he does that through the person and work of Jesus, that he was our substitute in judgment, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, and rose again in new life, not just his, but ours. That's justification. Sanctification is the process by which God makes us what he's already declared us to be. Sanctification is the process that by which he changes us from being the self-centered, miserable wretches that we are in our own nature, to being what He actually created us to be and what He's already declared us to be. Take a look at these verses. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul's writing to the Philippians, um, a church that he started. He loved them like a father loves his children. And, and he is writing to them from a distance, pleading with them, saying, you have a, a, a track record of pursuing um, the gospel and, and, and seeking to honor God. Now that I'm gone, man, I'm pleading with you, keep doing this. What? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And some of you are like, oh, wait a minute, Steve, you just told me that we're supposed to stop working, Right? To the him who stops working but simply trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, that's, that's how we're justified? Absolutely. Absolutely. The key point here is not that we're working for our salvation. Look at the prepositions because prepositions are incredibly important. I am an English teacher. Uh, it doesn't say work for your salvation. What does it say? Work out your salvation. In other words, you are working from your justification into your sanctification. We get in a lot of trouble when we reverse those, when we think God accepts me when I perform. See, a lot of you, man, you get stuck in sin, you'll get stuck in a rut, you'll start making bad choices, and pretty soon you're even like, man, I don't even know if God loves me. I don't even know if I'm saved. And what you're doing is you're basing your confidence of God's love for you in your performance for Him. That's backwards. We're confident in our relationship with God, not because of our performance for Him, but because of Christ's performance for us. Our sanctification is based on our justification, but, well, I should say and, it is our responsibility to work with God in our sanctification. In justification, God does all the work. God declares us right. God became flesh. God lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. He's the one that even gives us the faith necessary to reach out and trust in the finished work of Christ. God does all the work. He gets all the glory. In sanctification, it is our responsibility to work with God. We are supposed to partner with God and work out 
the results of our justification. God declared us right. Now He wants to make us right. It's our responsibility to partner with Him in that process. We need to fight for it. We need to fight for it. It needs to actually be the greatest desire of our lives. Notice what he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that that while we're learning how to become good followers of Christ, we should be afraid that God's going to reject us? (laughs) No, that completely undercuts exactly what we've already taught. He's not talking about us being afraid that God's going to stop loving us that God's going to stop showing His affection to us, that God is finally going to say, you know what, that was the last time, now I'm done with you. Some of you live like that. You really live under that fear that God is this kind of just slightly annoyed parent who's eventually going to snap and say, I'm done with you. That's not what we're talking about. That is not God. In fact, that completely ignores what we've already established, that God accepts you not based on your performance, but on Christ's. And that acceptance is absolute. So what does it mean to work it out with fear and trembling? What he's saying is that you need to take this seriously. You need to be afraid of missing out on what God has for you. This should be the single greatest passion of your life. This is more important than your career. This is more important than your marriage. This is more important than your dating relationships. This is more important than your parenting. How in the world could I say that? (laughs) Because it's the foundation of everything else. It's the foundation of everything else. We need to pursue becoming the people God has called us to be. And what you're going to find is that as you pursue that, it's actually going to give you a greater freedom in all the other gifts God has given you. If you're pursuing becoming the person God has called you to be, it's going to make you a better husband or a better wife, a better parent, a better employee. Because you're not going to find your ultimate satisfaction, ultimate worth in how you perform in those areas. You're going to find freedom to be broken but empowered in those areas and trust that God is greater than you. And that ultimately, he's going to do something you couldn't do for yourself. It gives you the freedom to actually continue to rest even as you work. Even as you work to become the person God has created you to be, you're resting in the fact that he's the one doing the work. In fact, look at the end of the verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're going to work with God in your sanctification. Why? Because God's working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does that mean? What that means is that he's going to give you both the desire and the ability to become the person he's calling you to be. He's going to give you both the desire and the ability. See, at the end of the day, not only uh, the fact that he declared us right, but the fact that we're changing and becoming more like Jesus, he gets all the credit. We get none. He's the one doing all the work, even giving us the desire to pursue him. We cooperate, though in the sense that we fight for it. We fight for joy. We fight to continue to delight in the person and the work of Christ. He declares us right through the work of Christ. He will make us right through a progressive change of our behavior, of our attitudes, of our values. It's going to mean a lot of change, a lot of shifting, and that means a lot of pain sometimes. And we need to fight our way through that pain to continue to focus ourselves on our delight in God. We need to cooperate with God. So that means we need to uh, actually learn to recognize God's hand in the suffering. All right, let me make an important distinction. Um, this was something that I picked up from Pastor Darren at the journey, um, and, and it's an illustration that has stuck with me, and, and so I'm going to use it. If you've seen it before, awesome. If you haven't, great. Um, but it's this. I want you to be able to discern God's hand in your life because there are, there are, there are um, a lot of times ways for us to get clouded vision so that we don't clearly see the hand of God. How do we cloud our vision? We cloud our vision with two things, guilt and condemnation. Guilt is something we put on ourselves or others put on us when we fall short of expectations. It's a weight of debt, right? It's a weight of debt. And we have a myriad ways that we try to deal with our guilt, but usually they're things that we do to try and pay it off somehow, right? You're doing something to, to you know, if you've, you've hurt somebody's feelings, you're doing something to try and make them happy, right? It cracks me up. My kids, um, (laughs) sometimes they'll be going back and forth, teasing and blah, blah, blah. And eventually somebody really gets their feelings hurt. And, um, and my kids love each other. I love it. We have, it's a delight, but, but occasionally somebody really will get their feelings hurt and it cracks me up. And and the other one will be like, you want to hit me? You know, I mean, what are they saying in that moment? They're saying, I feel guilty because I have a debt now 
right? I did something stupid. I have a debt to you, and I don't know how to pay it, so I'm just going to let you share the debt, okay? You can hit me and have your own debt, and then we're mutual. We're on this level ground. You know what I'm saying? That's guilt. Guilt is, is we put it on ourselves. Others put it on us when we don't measure up to expectations. The problem with guilt is that it always drives us to try and pay off a debt. Condemnation is this blanket that comes over us often after we've experienced guilt that basically says you're a loser and you don't measure up. Condemnation is this blanket that comes over us and says, not only did you fail, but you're a failure. Not only did you screw up, but man, you are a loser. You will not measure up. You will never measure up. That's condemnation. Condemnation, by the way, has no place in the life of a believer. You know why? Because Christ bore your condemnation. He died for it. It's not yours anymore. See, when we have that voice going on in our head that says, you're a loser, you'll never measure up, that's the broken part of us trying to enslave us again. It could, in fact, even be the enemy. That's one of the enemy's primary tools. Satan, his name actually means the accuser. And he will come in and he will accuse, trying to cover you in a blanket of condemnation. And in your, when you're under that blanket of condemnation, man, you can't turn to grace because all you see is your sin. You don't see the glory of forgiveness. All you see is your sight is filled with the brokenness of your failure. And it paralyzes you from embracing grace. Those are not from God. You know what's from God? Conviction. Conviction comes from God. How do we know conviction? Well, conviction, first of all, isn't a blanket and it isn't meant to condemn. It's meant to call our attention to something very specific. Now, let me give you an illustration. Take your finger. It's going to be weird. Do it. Stick it up. Come on. I see you. All right. Stick it in your shoulder and press till it hurts. Harder. Make it uncomfortable. There you go. Don't let off. You're like, this is really great. Now, if you had to sit here all day long, how much, what else could you think about? Pretty soon, this is all you'd be thinking about, right? All right, you can let go. You can let go. That's how God works. When God wants you to change something, He brings a very specific area of discomfort into your life to open your eyes and get you to pay attention. Generally, all you have to do is stop and say, Lord, what do you want me to change? <laughs> what are you trying to show me? And He'll tell you. The problem is a lot of times you just don't want to see it. We'll get into that because we can be really rebellious and hard-hearted, right? We can be like, yeah, we know you're trying to bless us, but right now we're really trying to hold on to our vision of blessing. We know it's not true, but we're deceived in this moment, and we really think our vision of blessing is better. So God's going to be like, yeah, okay, let me press a little harder. Let me just make the discomfort a little higher. Let me just bring in a little bit more pain, right? Because pain is a great way to get us to motivate us out of our apathy, out of our sin, and ultimately to pursue the thing that is better. That's how God works. It's conviction, not condemnation. He's not rejecting you in that moment. Do you get that? When he brings conviction into your life, it's not him saying to you, I don't love you. What he's saying is, I love you enough to bring discomfort into your life to change you. I'm not just going to forgive you. I'm going to free you. I'm not just going to declare you right. I'm going to make you right. Even if you don't want to go with me, I'm taking you because it's my work for you. It'll be easier for you if you cooperate, though. And I'm inviting you to cooperate. I don't have to break your legs. You can walk. I don't have to inflict pain <laughs> if you learn to center your heart in delight. And that's what this psalm is about. This psalm is about recentering our delight through a very specific series of, of steps. Because when God brings that level of conviction, not condemnation, not guilt. That level of conviction, we know that we're being pushed to turn back to God. Take a look at verses 3 and 4, where David describes this very thing. For when I kept silent, silent about what? Silent about my sin. Silent about my offense. When I tried to keep it hidden, not just from God, but even from myself. When I kept silent, when I tried to keep it quiet, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My bones wasted away. That Hebrew word for wasted means worn thin. It's used of garments, of clothing in other places. You ever felt that way? Like you were just fraying? Like, like <laughs> there's this heaviness and you're just feeling weak. Like your bones can't support your weight. You're just being worn thin. God's hand, he says, is heavy 
upon me. Through my groaning all day long, for, your day, your, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up like by the heat of summer. That word strength is literally sap. It's as if all the moisture is just being leached out of me. That doesn't sound real pleasant. But here's the deal. God's not a butcher. He's a surgeon. He doesn't just come in and inflict pain for no purpose. He moves toward a very specific goal to remove something that needs to be removed. And the more we fight it, the more it hurts. Not because he is vindictive, but because he's loving. And he loves us enough to take us through the pain we need to go through to become the people he's created us to be. You realize he's strong enough to endure your hate and your anger and your lashing out without ever growing tired of you, without ever looking at you and saying, I'm done with you. In all of your little thrashing and angry and temper tantrums, he's looking at you as a loving father saying, that's fine. Guess what? I can wait longer than you. My strength is stronger than yours. My will will ultimately take you where you don't want to go because it is where you want to go. You just don't see it yet. God's hand was heavy upon me, conviction, that weight of suffering that is, in fact, good for my soul. What's the result? Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You ever, you ever been there? What an incredibly freeing moment. What an incredibly freeing moment when the burden that you've been trying to carry is lifted, when the debt you've been trying to pay is accounted, when the stain you've been desperately trying to hide is covered. I acknowledged my sin to you. That means that he, that he basically admitted it, that he actively, instead of actively trying to cover it, he actively brought it out. This isn't natural. We don't, we don't naturally bring things out that we're ashamed of. Naturally, we hide them. Naturally, we conceal them. Naturally, we try to keep them buried. What did he do? He brought it out. He brought his sin before the judge of the universe and said, here is my shame. Here is my failure. Here is my brokenness. What in the world would motivate anyone to do that? What would motivate anyone to strip naked before God and basically say, see me in my shame? The only thing that would motivate that is if you're completely and absolutely convinced that God loves you in spite of your sin. And then if you believe that, how could there be any other logical alternative? See, if you get that God absolutely, unconditionally loves you based on the work of Christ, you're not going to continually try to hide your brokenness from Him because He already knows it. He paid for it. It was His blood that set you free. There's no motivation to hide when you realize you're already naked before God and in your nakedness, He's already loved you and declared you right. Your shame is not your own. Christ took it and paid its price. And it was really bad. I mean, there is no more damning message in the universe than that Jesus died for you. That's how bad you are. It required the death of the Holy Son of God, but there's also no greater affirming or exalting message in the universe that He would be glad to do it because He loves you. And He's that determined to work for your good in spite of your stubbornness. That kind of love frees us from fear and allows us to come boldly into His presence and say, I acknowledge my sin to you. I show you my brokenness. I voluntarily expose my shame. So here's the deal. We're always going to hide in something. We're always going to hide in something. In verse 5, he said, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. See, we're either hiding in our pride Hiding our shame, hiding in our performance, hiding in our ability to impress people, hiding in our ability to put a front on, hiding in us, or we're hiding in Christ. You're always hiding in something. Justification calls us to hide in Christ. We're called to the freedom of hiding in what He's done for us, not what we do for Him. 
And when we're hiding in Christ, we are bold in our confession. We are hiding in Christ, we are bold in our brokenness. Not because we're proud of it, but because we're free of its consequence. This allows us not only to enter into Christ's presence freely, it allows us to see ourselves freely. I can stop hiding from myself, trying to perform for myself, listening to those voices in the back of my head, because I already know I'm accepted. I can just tell myself the truth. (laughs) I am loved. Why? Because Christ loves me. I am right because Christ has made me right. I am the Son of God. Why? Because He has declared me His Son and has adopted me into His family and has declared a great future for me and is changing me right now. And it gives me great freedom with others. I don't have to hide my brokenness from people. I don't have to continually put on a front. I can let it out there a little bit, you know? Not that I'm always like just walking around like displaying my brokenness for everyone to see. That would just kind of really be ugly, you know? But there are appropriate ways and in fact necessary ways for us to confess our sins to others. When I've hurt you, I can come to you and without fear say, I know I hurt you and I'm sorry. Not from guilt, but from the freedom of love. I am loved and accepted. I want to, in that love and acceptance, move back into a relationship with you where you feel loved and accepted. I don't need to earn your favor, but in grace, I want to give you favor and restore your favor back to me. And if I can't earn it, I don't have to try because Christ has already earned it for me. I'm not under obligation to perform for you in such a way that you approve of me. Do you understand how radical this is? How freeing this is? It will absolutely change your life. This this very simple practice of, of acknowledging and confessing your brokenness and coming into the presence of God to have your joy renewed, not because of your performance for Him, but His for you. So we need to stop hiding in the wrong things and start hiding in the right things because when we lie about our sin, we're hiding in our pride. When we confess our sin, we're hiding in His love. Take a look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach Him. You are a hiding place for me. You catch that? You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. When we're hiding in the wrong place, we're surrounded by whispers of accusations continually. Whispers of fear, whispers of threat. When we hide in Christ, we are surrounded by shouts of deliverance, boldness in spite of my brokenness. Why? Because I'm accepted and loved. It allows me to confess quickly and, 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 and boldly. I, when I first became a believer, um, I was a mess, and, and I had plenty to try and figure out how to work out in my life. I mean, I had certain addictions, and I had um, crazy stuff. And, and at 17, um, one of the areas that I had to work out, which I didn't even realize, um, I had never probably honestly done a single piece of schoolwork in my life. Um, I was a master cheater um, and had developed, you know, I mean, st- everything from stealing the final and, you know, keeping it under to, this was pre, you know, digital stuff. So you had to do it all like with actual paper and stuff. Um, so I'm at college. Bible college, um, and I've become a believer, and I'm taking these classes, right? And I'm, this was, I mean, it's a crazy story. I'm an unbeliever enrolled, and I'm taking Greek, and I'm taking, you know, Christian life and Bible study, and I'm taking all this stuff, and um, honestly, the worst class for me was Christian life and Bible study. I just called it Christian life and BS because um, that was its acronym. There you go. And that's kind of how I felt about it. It was not something that I was happy about doing. It was full of busy work. It was full of a lot of stuff that I just didn't want to do. And, 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 um, and so I cheated. <laughs> he would send around these little reports that basically were reading statements, like honesty statements. Um, and, and it would be like, did you do your reading this week? And you would get the points if you just signed off on it. I mean, glorious for a cheater. Um, and so it's coming around and, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to sign off on this. And so then I go to lunch and I'm sitting there and I'm like 10 minutes in when all of a sudden the finger comes right? And, and in the back of my head, I hear, you just lied. And, and the discomfort comes, right? It's that poking in the shoulder. And I'm like, come on, it's a signature. What's the big deal? 
It's like 10 points. What does it matter? But it gets heavier. It gets more pointed. It's kind of like God saying, no, you, you just lied. And, and that's not okay. And this is an area that you actually need to... And I, and I tried to run from it, and I tried to distract myself, um, but I was just too sensitive to that. I mean, it was raw. I mean, I was a brand new believer, and I was like, man, I want to honor God. So I went and knocked on my professor's door, knock, 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 and, and he came and opened the door, and I'm like, I need to let you know I cheated. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, that honor statement. I didn't read. I signed it. He's like, all right, glad you confessed. I'm sure most, you know, he's like, very few, you know, very few people actually come and say this. this is great. You know, he's kind of like a little surprised. I'm like, great, shut the door. I'm done. All right, about a week later, um, Greek's getting heavy, class load's getting le- I'm actually trying to study. I'm actually learning how to be a student during this time. Not an easy thing to do at 17 when you've never done it. Um, and, and this little thing comes around again. And it was a book that I kind of skimmed, kind of got lost, and I got distracted, never finished. And it's coming around, and you're like, oh, come on. Are you kidding me? I deserve, an, you know, I deserve a little credit. I keep it going. All right, I don't even get to lunch this time, right? It's like, it's like um, I'm about getting, walking in, and I'm like, all right, I know how this ends. Um, I don't get to win, right? And so I don't even go to lunch. I go and knock on the door, knock, knock, knock. I'm like, hey, just to let you know, I, I cheated again. He's like, all right, Steve, um, just don't do it again. I'm like, thanks, man. All right, shut the door. I'm done. All right, flash forward to the end of the semester. Everything's chaotic. Everything's crazy. I'm taking like, not even kidding, man. This little Bible college had the hardest classes I've ever taken in any college. I'm not even kidding. Like I'm taking Romans and, and Daniel Revelation and Greek and, and, and I'm, I'm seriously studying 20 hours for a single test. I've never studied in my life, right? And all of a sudden I'm just like overwhelmed. That silly little paper comes around again and it's for this silly little book that I just didn't want to read. And I just, I'm like, this time I don't even look. I just sign it and keep it going before the class is over. I'm like, are you kidding me, right? I'm like sick of myself at this point, right? I don't even go, I just head straight upstairs, knock, knock, knock. He's like, I am, uh, Steve? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, man, um, I did it again. He's like, <laughs> he's just, all right. All right, here's the deal, you guys. When's the right time to confess? When you sin. What if you keep doing it over and over and over again? How much should you confess? Every time. Does God get tired of you? No, but you're going to hear a voice that says he is. You're going to hear a voice that says this time it was too much. This time you went too far. This time it was too many times. You know, you get grace when in the middle of your sin, you run to repent. Like in the middle of your sin, you're like in the middle of it. And you're like, God, look at me. (laughs) I don't want to do this, but I kind of do. And I'm doing it and I shouldn't be. Will you help me out here? right? What do we do? We, we sin and we're in the middle of our sin. We like pretend God doesn't see us, right? We're like Adam and Eve covering ourselves with fig leaves, hiding in the bushes. We're like my two-year-old hiding behind the curtain in the living room, pretending that, that mom and dad doesn't know where I'm hiding. We know God sees us. And yet in that moment, we're like, well, I don't deserve for him to see me, so I'll just pretend he doesn't. And then we're like, well, I feel really guilty about this, so I'll beat myself up for a week or so, and then I'll pray. What are we doing when we do that? We're trying to pay a debt we can't pay. We are, in fact, dishonoring the grace of God by taking to ourselves a work that is not ours to perform. You guys, grace gives us radical boldness in our brokenness to run to God even in the middle of our sin and to come to him and say, you're the one who gives me the will and the ability to do what is right. Right now, I don't even want to. Will you please give me the will? Will you change my desires? And you know what? He will. He will. You know what the, like the old school solution is? Try harder, right? White knuckle it. Self-control. The old school solution is, you know what? How do you deal with sin? You just stop. How do you deal with sin? You beat yourself up. You try harder. You put more effort into it. You know what that produces? Hypocrisy and hiding. Because you can't do it. The only thing that will actually do it is, in fact, the very grace that invites you to this radical honesty. 
Because as you come into this radical love and confess your brokenness, He will actually change your desires back to Him. Even in the middle of confession, you will realize that He is more delightful than the sin you're pursuing. That the satisfaction He gives is greater than what you're looking for outside of Him. The love of God that calls you into His presence with that radical boldness is the very thing that changes you to desire more of the love of God. Our psalm ends with an invitation from God Himself. In verse 8, I will instruct you. I, the Lord, will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go and counsel you with my eye upon you. There are three words there, instruct, teach, counsel, that all kind of drive to the same thing. God is taking us somewhere. God is changing us, and He is our mentor. He is our discipler. He is our teacher. He is the lover of our soul. He is the parent who is molding us. And he does it with his eye upon us. Now, that's not like your teacher used to say, you know, like, I, my eye is on you, right? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I intimately love you, and it's my joy to focus on you. I delight in you because you are in Christ, and I delight in Christ. I delight in you, and my eye is on you to guide you, to love you, to help you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. All right, that's my vision of a horse. Some of you, you, you think of horses as these beautiful, graceful, gentle creatures. They're not. They're evil and they're wicked. Um, you can get on a motorcycle and you know how fast you're going to go. You know what direction you go. You know when you're going to stop. You get on a horse, it knows what direction it's going to go, how fast it's going to go, and when it's going to stop. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, it is like 2,000 pounds of muscle, Right? And, and those of you who have worked around horses know that there are some nice horses, but there are a lot of very willful horses. And there are a lot of biting horses and kicking horses. There are horses that will eat out of your hand and then bite off your fingers, right? They, they are not always wonderful creatures. And I love that it says, don't be like the horse or the mule, because mules are even more known for this. They are just known for being the most stubborn, headstrong, and, and even self-destructive creatures on the face of the earth. They will fight you, right? You're trying to get them to go this way. They're backing off a cliff. And they're like, as long as you're pulling me, I'm going the other way. I don't care where I'm going. That's us. Do you get that? We in our sin are that bent on our self-destruction. God is committed to changing us for his glory and our good. And what he's saying is, I'm inviting you to not be like that. Don't require me to put a bit and a bridle on you. I'm going to get you where I'm taking you one way or the other. How much suffering it takes is sometimes up to you. You know what a bit and bridle are? They put that bridle on there and they put the bit in the mouth. That, that, that's not real comfortable. Horses actually hate it. You know why? Because it, it hurts. How would you like it if that's how people got you? You know? You know? So you're like, yeah, that's my wife. No, it, it, it's an incredibly uncomfortable way about going through life. Look, he says, I instruct you with my eye on you. You ever, you ever like had a good teacher or a loving parent or a mentor or a coach who could guide you with their eye? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like they could just give you a look and you knew what they were instructing you to do. See, that's the way we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be like a feather on the wind of the Spirit. Incredibly responsive. And when we're a feather on the wind of the Spirit, it doesn't hurt. We follow where He leads. The problem is more often we're like a horse digging in our hooves. We're dangerous to ourselves and we're dangerous to the people around us. And when we're in that state, God loves us enough to bring discomfort into our lives, to guide us and direct us where we need to go. Do you hear the invitation? Do you hear the invitation to boldness? It's, it's not about your performance for God. It's about His performance for you. And when you get that, it frees you to be bold in your confession, bold in your brokenness, bold in your transformation, where God will, in fact, change your desires and free you to become the people He's designed you to be. We are often our own worst enemy. But what's awesome is that while we're our own worst enemy, God is our best friend. And He will use even the pain in our lives, even the consequences of our own dumb choices, not to punish us, not as vengeance, but as ways to free us. You guys, wrap it up with this thought. If you have suffering in your life right now that's a result of your own dumb choices... That's not God mad at you. 
That's not God punishing you. That is God inviting you in that pain to once again discover the beauty of the grace of God. That pain can become one of the greatest sources of grace in your life. If you simply see it as the hand of a loving God directing you to delight in Him instead of yourself and in your sin. And just get quick at confession and repenting, turning away from what destroys and turning to what gives life.